And then she said, well, are you going to come straight over? And probably 10 minutes later, I was on her doorstep. You could say I went in for a cup of tea and I kind of stayed the next five years. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Despite being among the celebrated surrealist artists of the last century, the British-born Leonora Carrington is still overlooked as compared to her male counterparts, some of whom were close friends and collaborators. One surrealist was her husband for a time, the famous painter Max Ernst. But over the years, more and more people are coming to know Carrington's work, and the 2022 Venice Biennale was named after one of Carrington's books, The Milk of Dreams. About the Milk of Dreams, curator Cecilia Alemani said that it describes a magical world where life is constantly re-envisioned through the prism of the imagination, and where everyone can change, be transformed, and become something or someone else. This kind of a liberated self was a cornerstone of Carrington's outlook on the world, and a key to understanding the fascinating images she created. Her life story is one of world-building. Dissatisfied with her well-to-do family's vision for her future, Carrington sought freedom through boundary-pushing art. She wanted more than her upbringing could ever bring her. After being kicked out of schools, she eventually fell in with the Surrealists in Paris in the 1930s, who shared her thinking about art-making and also how to live. But a dark era was dawning in Europe, and Arendt was arrested. Carrington ended up in a mental asylum where she underwent a brutal treatment. And so she left Europe, her family, and everything behind her, and eventually landed in Mexico, where she found that liberation that she was searching for. She'd spend the rest of her days there, and she would become a national treasure. And in many ways, she never looked back. Well, that's not entirely true. What you'll find if you look at Carrington's paintings is a constant haunting from her past, her childhood and youth, and the rooms and spaces and landscapes of Europe. Though totally estranged for decades from her family in Europe, one day, one family member came knocking on her door. It was a cousin, Joanna Moorhead, who had heard by a fluke about Carrington and went and tracked her down in Mexico City. Moorhead, who's a journalist whose writing has appeared in The Guardian and The Observer, among other titles, came to know Carrington very well over long nights and days of talking, and she wrote a book in 2017 called The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington that chronicles her relationship with her cousin and her cousin's life and achievements in art. Moorhead has returned in more ways than one to Carrington's world since the artist died in 2011. Her newest book, out on August 22nd, delves into those spaces that defined Carrington's life and her paintings, called Surreal Spaces, The Life and Art of Leonora Carrington. Surreal Spaces, The Life and Art of Leonora Carrington is a result of Moore's careful study of Carrington's intricate works. Moore had actually traveled through the artist's past and into the former homes and studios in Britain, Ireland, and France, just to name a few places, as well as her final stop, Mexico City. It's a story about taking chances on life and living life deeply. I'm very pleased to be joined by Joanna to discuss the places that formed and informed the work of such an important artist. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for joining me on The Art Angle today. I'm so excited to talk about the life and legacy of Leonora Carrington. How's it going and where am I finding you today? I am in South London, where I live for much of the time. Which is one of the spaces that is explored in your new book, which we're going to be talking about today. 
The famous surrealist painter Leonora Carrington has become a household name for many of us, especially since the Venice Biennale last year. Curator Cecilia Alemani named her group exhibition after a children's book that Carrington had published called The Milk of Dreams. But for those listeners who may be hearing about Carrington for the first time, could you shortly describe who she was as an artist? Like, how was her writing and her work? So Leonora, as you rightly say, was a writer as well as an artist. I think it's fair to say that she was best known as a visual artist, though. And while she worked across different art forms, I think it would be fair to say that she's best known as a painter. But she was also a sculptor. She also made tapestries. She also did stage sets. And she also made masks. Like most of the great artists of the world, she did a wide range of art. But I think the thing that she's best known for is her paintings. She was born and raised in Lancashire in England. And she joined the Surrealist Group in Paris just before the Second World War. And her paintings reflect very much her childhood and her early years. And so Surreal Spaces is your second book about her, and she's actually a long-lost relative of yours. The first book, The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington, which you published in 2017, chronicles her very eventful life beautifully, but it is also a story of you actually tracking her down and getting to know this estranged family member. So I thought this would be a good place to start. How did you come to learn about who she was, and how did you find her? When I was a child in Lancashire, growing up, I was aware that there'd been somebody in my father's family who disappeared and there'd been some kind of scandal. I knew it was a woman. I knew she was called Prim and I knew she'd gone and I knew something rather thrilling had happened, but it was very difficult to find out what. So fast forward like three decades, I'm living where I live now in South London, raising my four daughters. And I went to a little party organised by another parent in the class with a child in the same class as one of my girls. So it was nothing arty, nothing grand, nothing kind of, you know, inside art world type party. But there was one person at this party who was not a parent with a child in my child's class. And I found myself talking to her and she told me that she was a Mexican art historian. We had a brief conversation, but as I was turning away from her, I remembered that this character Prim from my dad's family who disappeared, that the only two things I'd really been able to glean were that her story involved art and that she'd ended up going to Mexico. So I said to this woman, listen, I'm sure you'll never have heard of my father's cousin. She went to Mexico many years ago. I said, she might be dead. I don't even know if she's still alive. And her name was, and then I had to remember, because in our family, she's called Prim. And I said, Leonora Carrington. And this woman was astonished and couldn't believe that I knew so little about a woman who she told me was a national treasure in her country and maybe the most famous living artist at the time in Mexico. So obviously then I was amazed at that because that certainly wasn't the the story I'd heard about. And this woman through the evening, she kept saying to me, if Leonora Carrington's your cousin, you must go and find her. And it just really like impressed itself on me. When I went home, I googled her paintings. I found out quite a lot about her story and also looked at examples of her work online. I was astonished myself that I suppose that I hadn't known more about her. And then a few weeks later, completely out of the blue, an opportunity came along to go to Mexico, which was in itself astonishing because I'm not a travel writer and I was no way expecting to go to Mexico. You know, most of my journalism was done from my desk right here, not traveling around the world. (laughs) But she'd sort of got under my skin somehow, the story, and I just knew that I wanted to go and meet her. So I went to Mexico and I got in touch with her through her gallery in Mexico City. The gallerist had gone to have 
tea with Leonora and she'd said, your cousin's going to be in Mexico City anyway, which obviously wasn't true. I was going out of my way to go to Mexico City to meet Leonora because the story was on the coast, at a hotel on the coast that I was going to write about. And the word came back that if I was in town anyway, you know, just give her a ring. If she's feeling up to it, you'd go for a cup of tea. So on the first morning, I did call her at one minute past 10 because the gallerist had said that she took calls after 10 a.m. And she basically said, well, she said two things that I thought were very significant. She said, I've been waiting for you to call, which I thought was odd because it was one minute past 10. (laughs) And then later I came to think maybe what she meant was she'd been waiting for somebody from her family to call. And then she said, well, are you going to come straight over? And probably 10 minutes later, I was on her doorstep. You could say I went in for a cup of tea and I kind of stayed the next five years. Obviously, wasn't with her for five years, but she lived another five years. By the end of that day, even, I knew that this was somebody I wanted to spend a lot of time with and that she had a lot of things to teach me. And we just got on very well and were having a good time. So I spent all of that week with her. And then at the end of the week, I asked her if I could go back. And I found a way of doing that, which was actually curating a show of her work in England, which happened at a gallery here in England in 2010. And what that gave me was the chance to go to Mexico City twice a year for the next four years and spend time with her. Because at that time, in 2006, and then the the show that I curated took place in 2010, at that point in Leonora's career, far less of her work was in the big public galleries. So most of it was in the hands of private collectors and dealers. And that made it quite difficult to track down her work. And what I realised early on was being in her kitchen was actually the route to finding out where the work was, because some of the work, for example, was owned by her lawyer. And of course, I got to know her lawyer because he was a friend and he'd come around. Some of the work was owned by the dentist. So being close to Leonora through those years was actually the route to also finding out the location of a lot of her work. I was working with a gallery. I was working with an art historian. We co-curated the exhibition. He was the director of the gallery. That was the route to finding the work. At the same time, I obviously was able to spend a lot of time with her. What an incredible series of events. It really sounds like fate that you two should have met at the end of her life and for you to then be able to tell the stories. just so serendipitous on so many levels. You're very transparent about the learning curve of getting to a point where you can understand Carrington's way of thinking. There's a clip in The Guardian that you shared, and she tells you you're trying to intellectualize something and you're wasting your time. What were some of the big early lessons that you learned from Carrington? I'm asking that question as a way into her perspective, really. Yeah, well, you're right. I realized, as I said, that very early on that there was a lot she could teach me. When I first met her, I was in my early 40s and she was in her late 80s. So I was at that point in life where I knew I was on the edge of the second half of my life. And from a woman's perspective, I think there's a sense of things being quite different in the second half of your life. And I think that this is not a thing that's about men or women. It's about both sexes. We're in a society that really values youth and maybe puts less of a value on the later decades of somebody's life. And in Leonora, I could see somebody who was still living her best life in her 80s. And every day was an adventure. And she was getting the most that she could out of every day. And she was also, although she'd had this fabulously rich story in her 20s, which is, as you say, what I wrote about in the first book, although all this stuff had happened to her and she'd been at the heart of this art movement and she'd known Picasso and Dali and been the lover of Ernst and she'd known everybody who was anybody in that group, 
And then she'd had this thrilling story of sort of traveling across war-torn Europe and then escaping. Although all of that had happened, she was determined that that wasn't going to be the only thing or the defining thing in her life. Of course, that's very important to understanding Leonora, knowing about those years. But when I knew her at the end of her life, she was not living just through the prism of that time, if you get what I mean. She was living as a woman who was still curious and still interested in life and still learning in her 80s and in her 90s. And I thought, this is how I want to be. And you're right, she also taught me a lot about trusting my instincts and my feelings about things. She showed me that even though I'm not an art historian, that I could do this work because she was very sort of democratic in her very strong belief that, you know, art doesn't belong to art historians. You don't have to be an art historian to understand art. Art is for everybody. Everybody's entitled to their view of it. She wasn't somebody who was interested in telling you why she painted this thing. She had the confidence to know that she painted this thing and you could make of it what you wanted. What you made of it might be completely different from what was in her mind, if she even remembered what was in her mind, you know, when she'd done it kind of thing. She really gave you her art. And so all of this was important to me. And so too, and this was where I was incredibly lucky, and I was incredibly lucky on so many levels. Although I think luck is also about seeing opportunities and taking them. I don't think luck just happens necessarily. Of course it can, but it's also, you have to be watching out for those moments in life, like that woman talking to me at that party. And then you have to be prepared to run with it. And that can be slightly the scary thing or you're going about out there. But the other important thing for me about meeting her and knowing her in this whole thing was family links are very deep. Genetic links, where you come from, your family, even somebody who's been separated from your family for many decades, in your family, in any family, it'll be the same. There are ways of doing things. There's a sense of humour. There's a take on the world that you have because you've got this shared history going back, maybe things you don't even know about that have influenced the way your family operates. And with Leonora, I recognised a lot of the way she operated. I just instinctively knew what she meant. And even if I didn't know exactly where it was coming from, I knew that I felt the same. So that, of course, made me realise I had even more reason to hang out with her because any younger woman would have thought, this is somebody who can teach me things. But the thing that gave me a lot about knowing Leonora was I could believe that I might be able to do those things because I could see where they came from in our family. So many lessons, I'm sure, on a personal level, but then also lessons about what it was to be a woman in this time, a surrealist painter in a very male-dominated scene, also war-torn Europe, as you say. Like I find reading both of these books, you really learn a lot about the social and political pressures that were on women, and Carrington navigated these with, like, total wit and ease somehow, even though it was by no means easy. You asked her at one point what surrealism is, and her answer is, it's the belief that nothing is ordinary and that everything in life is extraordinary. And I think you just explained really well that kind of charm and meaningfulness that she imbued into everything. And your new book is remarkable in that sense because it has a biographical structure, but it's told through space. Everything is enchanted for her. And so obviously the spaces, whether they're like exterior landscapes or the kitchen from her childhood, they were hugely impactful and they actually are codified into her work, which is super interesting to learn about. Could you speak a bit about the idea for this second book and if you could highlight a few spaces and how they manifested into a work? The sort of starting point for this new book, Surreal Spaces, 
was that Leonora's house in Mexico City, the house where I spent time with her, had been her home for about 60 years. That's a wonderful gift for anybody who's going to write a biography or a memoir, to be in that space. And so much of what of the stories that she told me about the past had happened in this space. And that house, after Leonora's death in 2011, that house was sold to one of the universities in Mexico City and then made into a museum, a de facto museum anyway. So it's a bit like the Blue House, the Frida Kahlo House, if you know that also in Mexico City, as in the university took possession of the house with the belongings of Leonora at the end of her life. The curation is as it was in those last years. So I was invited to go and join that team at the end. It mostly happened during lockdown and then at the end of 2021, actually. So they invited me over to sort of advise on that and to be part of it, which was wonderful. And it made me think, well, maybe there's a book about her house. And I was just thinking of a small book that maybe, you know, could be sold in the little shop there at the museum. And then that idea grew to be when I started talking to a publisher, they started talking about all the other spaces in her life, all the other places. But another place I realised it's very important or a very good idea to share in a book is the house where Leonora lived in the south of France with Max Ernst at the beginning of the Second World War. Because in that house, Leonora and Max, they used the fabric of the house to create their art. So their art is bas-relief on the walls, on the exterior and interior walls. It's paintings, it's murals. It's paintings on cupboard doors. Most of that art can't leave that house. And unfortunately for the art world, that house is not open to the public and there are no plans to make it open to the public. But I've been fortunate enough to get to know the very kind owners and I've spent a lot of time in that house. So I realised that sharing that house, which I sort of call a secret treasure trove of surrealist art, which I think it is, sharing that would also be very much worth doing. Quite a lot of this book is devoted to the house in Mexico and to the house in France. The house in Mexico hasn't even fully opened yet, I don't think, as a museum, so it's still a work in progress. The house in France, it's not a place that will be open to the public. And then I also retraced her steps from her birth to her death and went to all these other places along the way in England and France and Spain and Portugal and the US and Mexico. One of her most well-known works is the one that's at the Met, Self-Portrait, in of the Dawn Horse. This work, which is from 1938, looks very contemporary, like it looks like it could have been made this year, I find. It's sparse, but one of the major parts of the composition is the floor and this window with heavy yellow curtains. Like, she really uses space. Interiors and exteriors are such a big part of her paintings. Is there one painting, and maybe you could speak about this one in particular, that has a direct reference to some of these spaces you just mentioned? Many of her paintings, and I've chosen quite a few for the book, but there are many others as well, reference places that have been important to her. But I suppose the place that she returned to time and again as a place was Crookie Hall, the house where she grew up in Lancashire. In the painting you just mentioned, the self-portrait, the rocking horse that's behind her on the wall is the rocking horse that was in the nursery at Crookie Hall. And my father remembered that rocking horse. One of the things I find very interesting about Leonora's work from, I guess, an art historical perspective is she really knew she had to get away from Lancashire, had to get away from her family, found it too restricting, 
knew instinctively that she could not be the artist she has put on this earth to be if she stayed within the confines of her family. And I find it fascinating that despite having to leave, she also couldn't keep away. And what I mean by that is, although she never went back physically to Crookie Hall, she went back all the time in her paintings. And I think that's a very interesting paradox in her work. And she said herself, does anybody escape their childhood? Well, she was really talking about herself. I mean, yes, of course, our childhood's a part of all of us. But I think there were reasons why Filianora, I mean, escape is itself a loaded idea, isn't it? Escape your childhood. It both gave her the fuel for the journey. Working out that early childhood was a huge part of her oeuvre, and yet she had to leave it. So Crookie Hall recurs time and again in her work, as do other spaces and places in Lancashire. I mean, there's a painting called Green Tea from the 1940s, the landscape of which is quite clearly the house that the family were living in by then, which was called Hazelwood Hall, another big pile, this time a later Victorian house near the sea. Crookie was a sort of Gothic pile inland. So yes, there are echoes time and again of these homes in Lancashire. In your book, you outline just how much of a misfit she was in all of these places that she sort of moved through in her early childhood. Her time in Europe, as I was saying earlier, sounds far from easy. Even though she was, you know, from an elite affluent family and had relative mobility, she was put from one finishing school to another. For those who don't know, these are very antiquated schools for women to teach them how to be polite, good wives, basically. And this is not exactly the vibe of Carrington as we know her today. So a big transformative moment was discovering surrealism and the surrealists in Paris, which happened kind of coincidentally. And then she met Max Ernst. Could we sort of hover on Max for a while? I don't want to overemphasize him. I feel like a lot of women artists get put in the shadows of this famous counterpart male painters. But nevertheless, this was like a huge part of her life for a time. So maybe you could just take us on a tour through this period. So the story is that Leonora met Max Ernst at a dinner party in London in the spring of 1937. And they fell instantly in love. And the pair of them then went to Cornwall and spent some time there through the summer. The reason they did that was that Leonora's parents, Harold and Maury Carrington, were very much hoping that Leonora, who had come out as a debutante the previous year, would find a Catholic aristocratic husband. That was who they were after for their daughter. Max Ernst could hardly have been more different from the husband Leonora's parents had in mind. He was 46, she was 20. He was married. He was also divorced. He also had a teenage child. He was an artist. He was German. I mean, there was consternation in Lancashire when the family realised what had happened. And in fact, Leonora and Max then left London and went to Cornwall directly because of an intervention made by Leonora's father, which was that he was so angry at what had happened that he got the Metropolitan Police on the case. The reason Max Ernst was in London anyway was because there was his first solo show in England. And Harold Carrington got the Metropolitan Police to investigate that, telling them that he thought there was pornographic material in it. And it was Roland Penrose, the boyfriend at the time of later husband, of course, of Lee Miller, who got wind of this and said, we must leave London, this is not a safe place for Max. And they all went to Cornwall. And I think that was a very important moment in Leonora's journey because she was a searcher all her life, but she'd been searching as a young woman. As you rightly say, she knew she didn't fit into this family or this milieu. 
And she was looking for where she did fit in. And she'd found a lot of places in her life where she didn't fit in. She didn't fit into those conferences. She didn't fit in, as you say, to the finishing schools. And in those few weeks in Cornwall, she found the people she did fit in with. They were her family, really, the surrealists. And she knew that there was a whole different way of being. And that took her off into the new direction that she went off into. The way I look at it is this. Leonora said many times to me that she owed a huge amount to Max Ernst. She basically thought she'd been, she called it, diseducated by those nuns. I don't think she'd have even thought the finishing schools was even on the scale of education. <laughs> the nuns were the teachers at the schools. The schools she was expelled from were convent schools. Mm -hmm. The way she described it, you know, she was diseducated. So in other words, she learned nothing that she would think of as valuable from school. She met Max Ernst, she's still only 20, and Max Ernst has had a long time as an artist. He's 26 years older than her, and he's been part of this whole movement from its earliest days. She told me she learned a huge amount. She told me, from Max, I got my education. And I understand what you're saying about the kind of discomfort that we have about a, a young woman artist sort of being reflected through the prism of an older male artist. But the thing I'd say about Leonora is, she moved on from Max. She didn't stay in his shadow because she learned what she needed to learn from him and she loved him and they had a wonderful time together. But crucially, she knew when the time came to move on because as things played out, it became clear to her that Max Ernst would constrict her at a later stage in her life as her family had constricted her from the beginning. And she was on a journey now to find herself and to be the best version of herself as an artist that she could be. So I think that the liberating element of it is in Leonora's own decisions. So Max gets arrested, not because of her father, luckily, but for other reasons, unluckily. And Leonora ends up in a sanatorium. War has broken out in Europe. Everything is kind of getting really crazy really fast. She ends up in an arranged marriage that she arranges herself to help get herself out of Europe. She has this time in Lisbon seeking the safe passage. I really thought this was interesting, this scene in Lisbon where all these fugitives were gathered trying to get out of Europe. And then there's kind of a break and she ends up in New York. Max Ernst is with the famous art patron Peggy Guggenheim. Leonora has also moved on. They're all still in the same scene. And then she eventually ends up in Mexico. I'm skipping over many details of her life, but this is a podcast, not a book. But I'd love to sort of talk about the transformation between her Europe time and her post-Europe time in the Americas. Maybe we can speak about that as reflected through her work. Like, was there a transition in her work from when she had this time in New York and then ended up in Mexico City? An important thing to say is that when she was in New York in 1941 to 42, she was starting to do very interesting work. She had a gallerist at that time. You're right that all these other artists and Peggy and Many of those famous names from Paris had now relocated to New York. And Leonora was kind of the flavour of the month there. You know, people were interested in her. André Breton, the leader, so-called, of the Surrealists, was very keen on her work. There are examples of him writing how important an artist she is and is going to be. And I think New York would have been an easy place for Leonora to stay in 1942. Mm. And I think if she had stayed there in 1942... I wouldn't have been having conversations with people in this period in history about an artist they'd barely heard of, because I think she would have become much better known, because obviously New York is more a centre of the art world in the 1940s than Mexico City. Of course, there are very interesting things going on in Mexico City, and we'll come to those. 
So I think she started doing very interesting work in New York. But I think that the Leonora I feel I knew, the sense I get is that she wanted to play out this adventure. She wanted to play this thing to the end of the road. She'd met this Mexican. She pretty much decided to move on from Max Ernst. And now the Mexican was going back to his country, to Mexico City. And I think she just had to take it all the way. She had never been to Mexico. She didn't know what she was going to encounter there. But she was a complete adventurer. She was somebody who was going to find out. So one day in 1942, she and Renato Leduc, her husband, as you rightly say, she'd had this kind of marriage of convenience, although there was certainly a spark between them and they were not unhappy together. In fact, I think they were very happy for the time they were together. They drove down to Mexico City. That was the beginning of the whole of the rest of Leonora's life, because from then on, she would always be based in Mexico City, even though much later in her life, in her 50s and 60s and even early 70s, she would move back to the US, to New York and Chicago. And that, I think, is another interesting moment in her life. So she then lands up in Mexico City. And in the 1940s, her work in Mexico City is very much referencing back to what had happened to her in Lancashire and to things that had happened to her in Europe, as you say, at the sanatorium and at other points in that journey. And the way I sometimes describe it is, it's almost like she arrived in Mexico City with this suitcase bulging with experiences and adventures and traumas that she'd gone through, and they were going to provide the material for her art. And of course, she lands up in a Mexico City that's itself a fascinating place in terms of its art scene. And she quickly meets Frida Kahlo and gets to know the muralists. But she's come from a different tradition. And indeed, the Mexican artists were very aware of that as well, including Frida Kahlo, because part of what was going on in Mexican art at the time was about distancing itself from the European tradition. So they were on, in some ways, quite different trajectories. But Leonora, in any case, her work was going to reflect these adventures, these experiences, this separation that she'd had to go through and these other traumatic experiences along the way. So what you find is that her work, particularly during the 1940s and into the 1950s, it's still referencing what had happened in Europe. Fascinating. You know, speaking of spaces, as you said, she lived in this house for decades. Could you describe her studio and into the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s? Did she paint in this one place until her end of days? She very much didn't paint in one place. She would work where she found herself. There's a wonderful quote from her friend and patron, Edward James, a surrealist patron who was also the patron of Salvador Dali and René Magritte, who became her friend and bought a lot of her work in Mexico. He spent a lot of time in the house, in Mexico City, in Leonora's house, and he describes her studio and he says, I'll just paraphrase it, but he says something like, he arrives in this studio, it's a complete tip, a cat's just had some kittens over here, there are a couple of dogs over here, there's a baby crying there, there's a pencil with no end on it and a paintbrush with one little hair on it. And he says, my heart began to swell because I knew that this was a place where great art could be produced. And I think it's very clear what he's talking about there. She's not somebody who is interested in the perfect studio, everything being straight before she starts on her canvas. She was very much someone who would work with the ideas that she had, the moment. And so she worked throughout that house. And one painting in particular to mention is, as I've already said, she rarely did works that were completely anchored in the Mexican experience. But there was a very important work, a big mural called The Magical World of the Mayans, that she painted in the early 1960s. 
And she didn't paint that in the studio. She painted it through the middle of the house. It was obviously a big, big piece of canvas. She described it how she would paint as a younger woman when her children came along because the biography was that she and Renato did not stay together in Mexico City, but she found herself a new husband who was a Hungarian photographer called Cheeky Weiss. I met him. He was still alive when I first visited. He was a few years older than Leonora and he died between my first and second visit. Leonora and Cheeky had two sons in the mid-1940s and she would say that she painted with the baby in one hand and the paintbrush in the other. She wasn't somebody who, as I say, waited till the moment was perfect. She understood that from the mess of life comes so much creative. That's so inspiring. And in fact, as I understand, The Milk of Dreams was based on drawings that she made for her children. Is that right? And The Milk of Dreams was a book that Cecilia Alemani, as I said at the beginning, took inspiration for the Venice Biennale. Maybe that's a transition to also to talk about the Venice Biennale, which centers the sort of female mystic and mythology around the feminine figure by some readings. Did you go to this show? And what did you think of it? I did. I was there for quite a long time last year in Venice. I thought it was fabulous. I think Cecilia did an amazing job. I think Leonora would be incredibly proud to be associated with such an important moment in the Biennale's history, that the first time the Biennale has really opened itself properly to female artists and really taken them on board as central rather than just at the margins. There was some fabulous work there, many pieces that were obviously linked to Leonora's work, both at the main Biennale and also at the Guggenheim. The Guggenheim had a fabulous show. It wasn't just Leonora's work, but it was actually a brilliant example of how to best show her work. It was a really important moment and a moment that I know she would have been very pleased about. Uh, she said, I am as mysterious to myself as I am mysterious to others in an interview with you, I believe. And after all this research, after two books, do you feel that there's still something more to learn about Carrington? Do you think you'll ever fully understand this enigmatic woman? I'm sure I won't. I'm absolutely certain I won't. Do we ever understand anybody, fully understand or know anybody else? Do we ever fully understand or know ourselves? One thing I knew when I was spending a lot of time with Leonora was that I thought this was the golden time. And I always knew that this was the time to really enjoy being with her and to learn at her feet or to learn from her the lessons life had taught her. But I always knew that when she was gone, her work would still be here. There's just been a big show, which was first in Copenhagen and then moved to Madrid. I saw it in both those places. It's quite moving for me to be in those spaces. And sometimes I'm lucky enough to spend a lot of time at both those shows in a space with a wonderful piece by Leonora, surrounded by other wonderful pieces. And I can spend time with her work and learn new things. And I sort of always knew that in her paintings and indeed in her writings, I would be left with something to read and look at and I'd understand her in new ways. So I feel like that continues our relationship, really, that I'm still learning about her. Well, thank you so much, Joanna, for your time and insights today. This has been truly fascinating. Your book, Surreal Spaces, The Life and Art of Lenora Carrington, will be out with Princeton University Press on August 22nd. So I'm wishing you all the best with your launch. Thank you very much indeed. It's been lovely talking to you. Thanks for joining me today on The Art Angle. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. 
The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Carolyn Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.